inside and from. <laughs> Oh, I could see my shirt under. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Inside Improv. Hey, hey, hey. I am Stacey Halal from Curious Comedy Theater here in Portland, Oregon, where we're having a gorgeous, gorgeous day, uh, which is very, very welcome to get some sunshine and some fresh air. And I have lovely guests here today uh, that I could introduce, but also I can pass it around and uh, let them introduce themselves uh we'll start with our regulars joe and elise uh joe bill why don't you introduce yourself hey it's joe bill from the world of improv in chicago it's a gray day outside um and my daughter's on her way over so we might have a uh, an appearance by angelina bill uh in about 30 minutes great she's one of my favorites so mm-hmm. nice to see you, Joe. Thanks for being here. Good to see you, Stace and Elise and Ayala Laura. Oh. <laughs> you spilled the beans, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Elise. Yeah, okay, Elise, I've been practicing. Elise Rodriguez. Is that better? Getting there. It's getting there. It's getting there. <laughs> Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I'm Elise Rodriguez, also <laughs> coincidentally from the world of improv, and I am in Miami right now, and it is hot and humid, as usual. As it always but is. <laughs> it does smell. it does smell of rum out there, so that's always nice. That's nice. Is it just yes. because you were <laughs> drinking rum out there and spilled a little? No, no, it's because the majority of the population is drinking it. So at this point, it's like seeping from the pores <laughs> into the atmosphere. Amazing. I got to drink more rum. Sounds nice. And I'm so excited to have our very special guests this week. Uh, you are both in Amsterdam currently. Is that right? And usually. And uh, when not traveling the world, as we'll we'll talk about. And we're so excited uh, to have you both here. Uh, who would like to go first, Laura? Yeah, sure thing. Um, yeah, <laughs> my name. Keep oh, where am I? There she- I don't know. There you go. It tricked yeah, you because I'm- she has a purple shirt, but yeah. the other backgrounds, yes. True. That is true. Mm. Uh, yeah. My name is Laura. I'm from Amsterdam, the Netherlands, even originally, not just imported like someone else in this room. Uh, (laughs) And uh, when I'm not in Amsterdam, I'm usually traveling the world, um, but not now. Oh, yeah. And um, together with Gal, uh, we are part of Flock Theatre, our brand new improv company. Amazing. Thanks, Laura. I'm excited to talk to you. And Gael, it's bring it home for yeah. us. I'm, I'm the imported one. Uh, <laughs> I'm Gael, imported directly from France. Uh, I'm an improviser that grew in their improv in Strasbourg. And I moved to Amsterdam recently. It is not hot here. It is not lovely mm. weather. Mm. It is often humid, though, uh, but in, on the cold side of it. Uh, today was a nice day. Um, even if I've had a lot of reasons to be angry at people, but I'm feeling way better than that. Good, good. <laughs> I am so glad. I was just telling these two, uh, I had my first good night's sleep in over a week because our dog got, our puppy dog, uh, oh, yeah. it was my older dog, but our new dog uh, got fixed and he got his stomach tacked because they can sometimes flip. So he's been... Uh, drugged 
all week and then waking up in the middle of the night like confused it's been it's been rough guy uh, he's just passed out right now very heavily sedated at the moment um which also oh hey velvet it's a little nice hey velvet's here hey Yay, velvet. velvet amsterdam is the dream i would Aww. say which is the perfect segue into we we wanted to chat with you two partly because we love you both and wanted to just have some time to spend together <laughs> and an excuse to do it but also uh because this is a time where so many theaters are closing other theaters are are, are changing ownership uh dealing with black lives matter issues and sexism issues and just equity issues in general um many theaters are closing just based on finances because of the pandemic and here you are opening a theater. Tell us about where you are in that process and what it's like to think about or start opening a place in the middle of a global pandemic. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. I'm just like peeking over to Gal. Like, is he taking it into my head? Okay. Good. So, so uh, full disclosure: we uh, in September we started an improv company, not a venue. Okay. Um, which I think is relevant because back in the days, I uh, I was actually part of um, I had a theater school and I uh, was part of running a an actual venue and I've said I will never do that again. Now I'm you know don't hold me to that one. Maybe I will, <laughs> but uh, running a venue is not the thing that is currently top of mind. However, we did start our own improv company. Um, last September, between the two waves of COVID, we, uh, our country uh, allowed for theater classes to still happen, which meant that we could build our, yeah, our first courses. And that went incredibly well. We even managed to play shows. So there's a, a small theater here in Amsterdam that uh, uh, has plenty of seats, but then like they, they had like, uh, a smaller number of seats available for during COVID times. Uh, we sold out four times, which was amazing. We could just say our first production was sold out four times. That was great. Uh, and uh, Gail Lovely. directed that one. Yeah, that felt really good. Uh, thanks to COVID measures, we could sell out. We would have right sold out too. Yes. Yeah, we yes. would have sold out. Yeah. yeah. How but many we seats would have four shows. Was it, is this venue and uh, what capacity could you do? So there are 90 seats and we uh, could sell 25 tickets uh, for those for that, uh, that venue. And then we played four shows. Uh, so we would have sold out uh, otherwise, but then with Certainly. maybe fewer shows. But who knows? We don't. We cannot predict how it would have been otherwise. I think and we then can all in, safely yeah. agree right now that it would have been yes. a hands down sellout yes. easily. <laughs> yeah. uh, so were were performers masked? Were there shields? Were you able to be uh, unmasked together in that space? How did that go? Yeah. We we were able to be unmasked in the space. So basically, um, during fall in the Netherlands, uh, theaters yeah. were open if people were seated uh, 
a meter and a half or two meters away from each other. And once seated, they could take away their masks to watch the, sh to watch the show. Uh, to circulate in any way, they had to wear masks and keep distances on top of that. But once seated, they could take away that. And with the cast, what we did is that we rehearsed together every week um, the format that I that I directed. And um, for the show, everyone agreed that it was uh, fine to take away the masks and try to keep distance as much as possible. Okay. Um, which uh, worked. So good for us. That's um, great. Yeah. And now in Amsterdam, um, you know, I, I think a lot of us know about Boom Chicago in Amsterdam. Uh, yes. And what else? What's the what's the landscape of of improv theaters currently in Amsterdam? Um, I think. Like, I think yeah. Go. Go. Okay, I'm the newcomer. I'm the I'm the the outside <laughs> eye that discovers the Amsterdam scene, and I think. <laughs> improv in the Netherlands, in, in Dutch improv in the Netherlands, um, has has a very big tradition of doing some sort of theater sports or something that is inspired by theater sports. Don't tell Keith. Um, <laughs> and and there is a lot of small <laughs> groups. Uh, there is one big group called TVA that is. Uh, uh, um, very present, but there is a lot of. Um, Rehearsals and very little shows for for what is traditionally an improv group in Amsterdam in, in Amsterdam in the Netherlands will be like rehearsal every week, paying a teacher every week, and performing one show at the end of the year or maybe two shows if you're lucky. Um, so that's that's like the Dutch part of Amsterdam is is a lot of small teams of like fifteen people that rehearse every week and sometimes do a show. Then there is uh, of course Boom Boom Chicago that uh, has their own venue and that. Uh, does a lot of comedy, a lot of written sketches, stand-up uh, comedy, including improv comedy. Uh, and you probably know a bunch of uh, people that have been at Boom or are at Boom because they are bringing performers from the U.S. mostly. Um, there is Easy Laughs, which is a another major group uh, that has mostly native English speaker expats traditionally, and they start now... <laughs> <laughs> starts having more more people and they're doing also mostly comedy uh a little more long formish than than maybe boom and then we are a little bit the outsiders uh and we i saw pop the question what type of uh, uh improv do we do we do and we produce mostly improvised theater so we do long form narrative uh, uh genre-based improv in our performances so and like the show i directed that? What, sorry? sorry, what languages are you are you doing your shows in? English. Okay, great. My then, Dutch is on the way. Okay. <laughs> and so you're about to tell us about the show that you directed recently. Yeah, so the show I directed in, uh, in December was supposed to be a, originally in our plan, a rom-com. Um, but then with the whole pandemic thing, we decided to have something that uh, had less proximity <laughs> between the players. Uh, so we rerouted in something that was very on brand, which was a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> so with a long form. Right. So when you say on brand, not the zombie. theater company on brand, but pandemic <laughs> no, like, on brand. So yeah. Pandemic yeah. yeah. Okay. I, have, I have two questions, if I may. The first one is um, 
when you say that there's a lot of rehearsal, but not a lot of uh, performance, is it a venue, a lack of venue issue? Or is it, or I'm just trying to understand more of, of what the the reason for that is. Is it a lack of venue issue or is it like, it's just tech heavy, for example. Or just treating it more in the theater tradition than the improvisers yeah. do. Yeah, that was, yeah. that's my first question. It's so funny, like as a person who, excuse my cat, who I grew up in the Netherlands and I started doing improv in the Netherlands. And so you don't know what's normal until you go, you don't know what you think is normal until you go abroad. And mm -hmm. for me, it was super normal that we would rehearse every week, that we would pay a teacher every week and that uh, we would play like two or three shows because, you know, it's for our friends and family and that's how often they would come to our shows. <laughs> um, so that made, that made total sense to me and it wasn't until traveling when i discovered whoa there are these groups that that can rehearse every week without a trainer how do they even like get stuff done um I still and on the other question. hand i don't even know like and and the same with performing i'm now uh, learning in the last few years about how performing more makes you uh, a, a better player and uh, it, it sort of like makes you take your art a little more serious and I feel that that's um, a, a step that not many Dutch that's a step that not many Dutch improvisers have taken to uh, see it as a perform a professional performance art versus a yeah. fun hobby that I'm sometimes inviting my family and friends to. Okay. You know, yeah, just before you ask your other question, Elise, just to follow up on that, mm -hmm. it's funny because I think there's a certain amount of professionalism it takes to understand the value of rehearsals, though that often lacks. Uh, so some some blend between uh, having lots of stage time and rehearsing. I mean, sometimes we we have people we're rehearsing once a week who are like, "Can we do this every other week?" And it's like anyone who comes from theater is like, "What?" You know, we, we should be rehearsing every it's night. It's important to be in the same wavelength, too. Like, how do you build trust if you're not rehearsing enough together? That's right. And then what was your next question, Elise? Uh, my next question was that now that you did some shows that you sold out, what did you see a difference in the way that the audience received the content? Like we've had so many things going on at this point uh, throughout the world globally, you know, just in terms of social justice and the pandemic and people just kind of being sensitive to or not sensitive enough to each other. So I was wondering if you felt a difference in, in who the audience is now. Hmm. It's pretty difficult for me to answer because I'm a, a newcomer in Amsterdam. So to me, the audience here is different from yeah, what i'm used to right mm -hmm. uh but i maybe laura has more insight on that um th the real difference i have noticed between uh two years ago and uh the the last show we did is that people are more vocal to us actually it's a little bit more around the courses people are more vocal to us like oh, I really needed this. I mm -hmm. wanted to go out. Oh, I really, 
they will tell me after a class of improv, uh, this is the one hour a week where I'm not thinking about COVID all the time. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's the part I've noticed. I will say that, uh, I don't know if I could speak for the entire continent of Europe, but definitely the Netherlands. <laughs> I'll just speak for all of Europe. Make it easier for us. <laughs> um, uh, then we don't have to talk to I, other people and get other, you know, all that work. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it will save you the trouble. Um, that when it comes to social justice, uh, I think in uh, in our household, it's very much a topic that we talk about. Uh, it's not something that I see reflected a lot uh, in Amsterdam and even less in my country. Um, it's not that it's definitely more talked about than before, but not as intensively as I would wish. So I've mm -hmm. mentioned sometimes things like, hey, uh, shouldn't we consider this thing? Or how about, you know, some sort of like, even the, we don't have a proper translation of social justice. So I'm still looking in my own language for words for that. So how diverse is Amsterdam in general? I mean, obviously it's a hard thing to quantify, but Joe and I were talking about Amsterdam and Portland having some uh, similarities among them, a lack of diversity potentially being one is that the case in your opinion i think uh amsterdam has definitely like the netherlands in general has not that much diversity and the diversity mm -hmm. is very uh, secluded so we live in a neighborhood in the northern part of Amsterdam where there is a lot of um, uh, diversity. If you walk in the street, there is a lot of uh, uh, immigration and it's a neighborhood that is very, um, yeah, very diverse in itself. There are like plenty types of shop, plenty types of people, all shapes of colors. Uh, and, and it's very, it feels very much like what I'm used to in Strasbourg, for instance. If I compare it to Strasbourg, that is a very cosmopolitan city. Um, but definitely the center of Amsterdam is all white. And the improv community, we are the first improv company in North. And we are training uh, in, 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 a, in a social center here at like 100 meters from our house, um, where there is a lot of diversity passing by, but we are definitely not yet old enough to be integrated in the landscape that will attract people from around here. Mm -hmm. That's one of our goals. And that's what of the reasons why we are looking also for a theater to perform in the neighborhood and not the theater we're currently performing in, uh, even if we love them and we love the theater and the owners. But like um, our aim is also to be like, can we create that diversity to not to not forget the real diversity that exists in the country. Right, right. Sense. And I, I don't want to, you know, couch all of your, the improv conversation around boom, but it, they've been there a long time. And something that they've done is basically imported diversity. So Key and Peel met at, at Boom Chicago. Amber Ruffin has been through Boom Chicago. Uh, you know, many diverse improvisers who have gone on to have great success from from their time and experience there uh, which you know is is great and also not something everybody can necessarily make happen they have they have dinners at their theater for people who don't know boom chicago it's kind of a, a variation on second city would be the easiest reference they do 
sketch and improv, but they used, or at least they used to, they'd also have a dinner with your show uh, that was like a $25 dinner or something. So, so there's a lot of revenue there and they do a ton of corporate and touring stuff as well. Yeah, Joe. I was just going to mention like, you know, it's also worth noting that when boom arrived in Amsterdam, they were kind of rude Americans and kicked the door down and um, were loud. And uh, it wasn't a love affair at first sight. Uh, is that right, Laura? I mean, can you speak to that and like how that's, how that's going to uh, Unless you don't I, want to. I, yes, yeah, hey, not to be on the spot the, here. The, the, things, the things that I know about Boom are a lot of like secondhand information. So I do find, and currently there are a few people in there that are making change happen, which is amazing. I, from the seeing multiple casts pass through Boom Chicago, I can say that I, there is some diversity, but it's not amazing. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's very, very white. It's a lot of dudes and it's, yeah. uh, yeah. uh <laughs> and the, the, the fact that they, it's, I think only a few years ago started, um, also uh, casting people from the UK and not just from North America. I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, well, I think there's, you know, the, the diversity goes in many directions. And they, they, make, mm -hmm. they have a history of not connecting a lot with the Amsterdam improv scene, uh, which is finally under a few really lovely, uh, amazing, like, boss ladies. <laughs> <laughs> happening now uh, with uh, uh, Stacy and with uh, Biddy and so there there are things happening now but it Boomshka was pretty separate from the Amsterdam improv scene because they are casting all the way back in North America on the other mm -hmm. side of the ocean mm -hmm. and they right. have a history of not connecting a lot with anyone in that's kind of like like the film industry here they shoot a lot of stuff here in portland but they bring all the talent from la you know they're, they're required to do some amount of local casting but it's it's negligible in terms of creating enough of a working acting scene here so i imagine that's similar I think there is like a a <clears throat> when we talk about diversity uh the the um, the the dialogue is led by north america mostly uh and and europe uh takes its time to catch up on what means diversity for us as europeans um and something that is a big blind spot for most american people i know and most native speaker i know is that diversity of language is also a thing and that uh me being able to speak English to all of you doesn't mean that I carry with it all the cultural background that you have had growing up in the in the U.S. And, yeah. and I think Boom Boom has that thing that is very heavily American in what they bring on stage. And it is. I and mean, they, they've targeted that right, Amer like tourists, yeah, and and they yeah. they they. I remember when I was there. I, I don't know with the age of the internet because I was there that long ago, but they hand out tourist. <laughs> guides of this is booms suggested places to go here's the cafes you should go to the museums and then they, they walk the streets and rather than just hand you a flyer for boom they hand you something useful and they wear like little newsy they used to wear the messenger bags i don't know if they do that anymore but that is how they built that business as people were required to go uh walk and and distribute those back in the day i happened to go to college with the guys who founded boom they were 
uh, older that they were seniors when I was a freshman. Um, so they're from, you know, they were, they spent their time in Chicago yeah. as well. So that's the, the little bit of knowledge I have is just coming from knowing those guys and going, visiting when I was over there at the time that, that Amber was there. But what's interesting to me is that you're in this, oh wait, first I wanted to tell you this joke that I'm sure you've heard. Uh, what do you call somebody who speaks two languages? You know, bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks three languages? Trilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? American. So, American. <laughs> yeah. And even the term American is like, even the punchline yeah, is like already problematic, right? You'd have to be like United Statesian. Uh, yeah. But but you're in an interesting position because. Yep. That's what I was just thinking. So too. many people are trying to go back and correct this, um, mm -hmm. their history, right? And like it, everything's already been ingrained, uh, and so trying to go back and start from the beginning and find where your obstacles to creating more diversity and inclusivity come from. Whereas you two are starting fresh with this in mind. One of the things that and with we the are, freedom to like connect with the community, it sounds like because if the community is not that connected, then to boom Chicago, then it sounds like there's something missing that the community might jump on immediately because you'll speak more of a cultural language, and I don't I don't just mean uh, cultural to just the local space, but it's you two have been all around the world and you know how to communicate in many ways, right? So it's it feels like perhaps it would be easier for you to communicate with anyone who comes in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it definitely what, yeah. um, what is very lucky for us is that by traveling, we could be very inspired by how other companies work, by how mm -hmm. other uh, theaters work and what is their experience. Uh, I've had the experience of building an improv company in Strasbourg and, and running it for years. And Lauha has been uh, uh, building a theater school and, and running it for years. But we it's just our personal experience. And by traveling, we've had these moments while traveling where we would look at each other and be like, oh, <laughs> Isn't that a good idea? Um, <laughs> and so one of the things that is a, that is for us great is that we are now building a company from scratch. We're pretty newcomers. Lauha is well known mm -hmm. in the Netherlands as an individual, but was not attached to any improv group before. And I'm completely new in the Netherlands. Um, and so the decision we've made to try to... Um, uh, create that mix max and that diversity uh, uh, happening is that we decided to not have a main cast in uh, in Flock in Flock Theater, so the, our our company. Uh, so it's only Laura and me running it, and for each and every single production, we're casting, we're doing an open casting, an open application and casting a new cast with our aim to have people from these different communities and to try to mix them up. And I think Laura mentioned it, but like uh, Stacey and BD are doing an amazing job at Boom at also mingling and that the combination of all that makes it like uh, we've had students from Boom also taking classes at uh, uh, at Flock and vice versa, sending them. We've played last week for the first time ever in a theater again, uh, uh, a show at Boom, and um, and and we want to keep that moving, to not take anything for granted, and to be like at every production, we want to meet new people, 
And in the last production that we are still in the phase of trying to make a show happen, maybe one day, uh, we've had online rehearsals and etc. And Laura is now directing it. Um, the the cast that we have, we've casted someone we've never met before the casting, and we've casted uh, us. In total, we are seven players from very different backgrounds and coming from different places, etc. So. Um, I hope that this will like inspire more people to also mix up and not stay in their own little courtyard. I love that. That's honestly a direction that we've been talking about going is that originally it was really important to us to show how going through the training center could eventually lead you to the stage. Uh, but it does create an interesting power dynamic, right? Where there's something that people want and, and will endure things that maybe they shouldn't uh, mm -hmm. in hopes of this later reward, um, which can create like lean toward, and, and these aren't, you know, Curious has actually been like so healthy and morale was at the best place before this. So these are <laughs> these are chronic problems I've seen in improv communities everywhere and currently wasn't our issue. But like, how do you prevent it from becoming cult like? And if people are striving for some higher level and then you're asking them to continue paying money to maybe eventually get to that higher level, that is sort of a cult like Scientology yeah it is and it's like oh you you haven't achieved your clarity and now you need to go back and work on yeah. this or now you and so rather than we've been talking about just divorcing that and that there's a point at which when you think you've trained as much as as you're going to get out of our training center we're going to encourage even during not just then but like go take classes elsewhere, perform elsewhere, and then come back and audition for us for project-based um, shows. So it's, it's very validating for me to hear that you starting fresh, I'm like, okay, it's like it, when things are headed in the right direction, they tend to get in the zeitgeist of, because you're trying yeah. to, you know, you're two people. And if you have a hundred people that perform regularly in your space or your venue, you're trying to manage a hundred people and, and two people is not enough people to manage a hundred people, especially <laughs> performers who need a lot of uh, attention. So... Laura, that leads me to my question for you. You, I, I would love to hear. You said you did have a th venue, and then you were like, Ugh, I don't ever want to have a venue. What are some of the things about having a venue yes. that are discouraging you from having a, a venue yeah. again? Welcome to therapy. <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, Joe, you are not that wrong because I feel like I'm like going through all these different phases of like what happened back there and what in me as a person created the situation where uh, I, so the, the short story is I almost went bankrupt running a venue uh, that uh, with my theater school. Uh, so the venue was, it was a, a big venue where in there was a theater. Um, the previous uh, people that were managing that theater went bankrupt. The municipality of that, uh, so the local government of uh, my hometown, uh, they, where the theater was, they were like, hey, we're looking for a new person to run this place. And mm -hmm. me and my father said yes to it. So I was running a theater school for a few years by, uh, by then. And I 
took my theater school into that theater and my father started running the theater. So the venue, the four walls and the, the roof. And uh, uh, lo and behold, two years later, uh, the theater went bankrupt and it almost took my theater school down. So that was, I was 28 at the time is that true yeah 28 29 by the time so that's now eight years ago and uh, that's been really interesting because having your own theater i was like this is a dream this is everything I'm, i was waiting for like i think this happened at age 27 so i'm like oh my god i made it i got my own theater i got my own theater school this is amazing i got people working for me i got an office i was like i was killing it um <laughs> i thought but it was very, very expensive and sort of like the, the rent of that place was so high and we got, like, we, we were overly optimistic and a little misled by the local government to see what, that it wasn't financially viable to mm -hmm. run a theater if your local government doesn't put a bag of money on top of it to make it happen. And that's, you know, and I think everyone gets mad at high rents, right? And like, oh, nobody's supporting the arts and the rent's so high. But if you, if you say you inherited a building and you were renting it out and there's a theater that wants to rent it and the theater needs you to subsidize it because it's really only open a few hours of the week. But a bar makes, you know, in a night what we make in the theater all, all in mm -hmm. everything we do in like weeks, you know, several weeks. So, you know, I, I think that it's just not practical to have a theater and I, I just try to figure out how to to solve that puzzle every day of my life but yeah it's it's definitely tough um, you put a bar inside the theater but here's the thing even that right so here's the thing we have a bar however yeah. a bar and i'll say this i'm sure a thousand times on this on these meetings but uh what is the biggest nightmare for a bartender Oh, 150 people showing up at the same time. Right? We have a show. We are only open for so long. Doesn't matter. We can open yeah. 45 minutes before the show. Everyone's showing up 15 minutes before the show. They, they make this huge line. They're very upset if that line doesn't move fast and or right. discouraged from purchasing anything at the bar. So then you have to staff up. Right. So you, so we have to add staff so that we can crush the line. Obviously, that's an expression I use all the time. I'm like, we got to crush this line. So to crush the line, you need a big staff. And then what happens? The show starts and then the staff sits there for 45, 50 minutes. Sure. Then they get slammed again, but only half as much. So it, if you if you want to cut someone, let them go. It's like, who wants to come in and work uh, half an hour? have to split their tips with everybody and then go home. So so the bar, unfortunately, and especially if you're a nonprofit, yeah. you can't open the bar otherwise. Uh, it has to only be paired with shows here in the U.S. So, oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, I think for me in terms of a venue, my current theory is that the best bet is to have a for-profit bar adjacent that that can be open all of the time and then it can subsidize the the venue so there's like um the vortex in atlanta is like this 
hugely powerful or powerful popular burger joint you can get like a hamburger with peanut butter on it's like massive gross like heart attack hamburgers that everybody loves and then it has laughing skull with 70 seats underneath but because of the restaurant they can get todd glass they can get people who will sell out and and, and then you're always sold out because it's just 70 seats and it's supported by the venue so uh mm-hmm. i wanted to follow up on one thing from you gail that you mentioned which is i would love to hear the comparison between two european audiences and how is amsterdam different than strasbourg Huh. Uh, so I, I, um, I'm so fresh in Amsterdam. My feeling I have is that the audience is not, I mean, the audience is different because, because the scene is different. Uh, I think in general audience learn pretty fast, whatever you want to, uh, uh, give to them and then they will make the choice to show up again or not but in general in a city as big as amsterdam which is nothing compared to an american city but still like a million people um you will find a hundred people every time you do a show right it's not it's not that crazy but um, there is a very strong anchored belief in the uh dutch improv community that is that improv doesn't sell Improv doesn't fill up and improv doesn't sell. And if you have, you know, 25, 30 people to your show, you're lucky. Uh, I come from a place uh, where Strasbourg is three times smaller than Amsterdam. We have three times as many improvisers and, 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 and companies of improv. Uh, we have a bunch of different schools. I started improv in a, in a company that is actually an association, like an amateur association that is run voluntarily, but that does... I don't know, 55 shows a year. Um, the shows sell out with 200 people every time they do a show. When they have uh, exceptional shows, we've we've gone up to a thousand people in the audience for one show. Um, and and regularly there is like five, six, seven hundred people that, that show up for like end of the season type of shows. Um, and that's one company in Strasbourg. Wow. in a city that is way smaller than what we yeah, have in that's Amsterdam. It. That's what I was thinking. It reminds me of Edmonton, it, what, the way you're I describing it. Yeah. Like Edmonton I, I, has an audience for improv that has learned not only to enjoy it and be willing to pay for improv, but all different kinds, like yeah. narrative and short form and, uh, you know. Completely but unrelated, a, but it's also it's very much like Sarasota. <laughs> <laughs> In Sarasota, Sarasota is it just has a theater-going audience because everybody's a transplant from the Northeast. So when we our shows are typically we have a full house, um, but you've seen in the improv festivals completely sold out all all the stages for multiple shows a day. You know, but it really is it, it's the it's the culture of the audience that they're theater people. They just and that's an older. Theater. It's an older audience. A lot of retired mm-hmm. people and. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that's it. Here we find that improv is selling like uh, prior to the pandemic, most theaters were really suffering from dwindling ticket sales as as their audiences are getting older and their subscribers are, are literally dying off. And mm-hmm. uh, and and then we are growing fast. Uh, and I, I, I think that's a general theater question. Uh, which is that improv is such a living form of theater that's 
different than sitting and watching something like your TV, right? If it's between my TV and the show that all my friends have been talking about on Facebook or Reddit versus going to this play of unknown locals where I just sit and watch, right? It's, it's, it's a hard, um, it's hard to compete with Netflix. But I think with improv, there's a sense of inclusivity of the audience and participation from the audience and that they're essential and, and vital. And so in my opinion, that's a big reason uh, why people love improv. And you're crossing even more so between theater and improv. Like, do you feel that you're revitalizing theater in a way by making it uh, have this improvised component or being improvised entirely yeah i i think so it we need we still need to explain improv like the there is not a lot of like cultural reference to improv while I, i've seen in north america there is there is more of a reference to comedy so people understand comedy but then it's in the moment oh i'm curious if they can still be funny in the moment so there is even the the sitting around tables with your drink while you watch a show like that's not something that is very common in the dutch culture so when you come into an improv show that is you know built like that people are like what a table what's happening here <laughs> right um, yeah and i feel like the the audience we are aiming for is a little bit more the theater audience so people who would otherwise love right. seeing a theater show and are now wait you are coming up with it in the moment interesting uh, oh i've laughed so much oh this is so different from most of the heavy but interesting place that I've normally <laughs> uh, seen. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I'm like we are educating a little bit more on the like uh, side of this is you st are still in a theater and you still buy a ticket and you're still more or less uh, uh, paying attention that direction. But also we sometimes ask you questions. So don't be spooked, but we might ask you something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. We're going to break this theater rule. I think, I think <laughs> we're also competing with phones now. Like not necessarily audiences in the theater holding their phone, but I mean like our people's attention spans are just everywhere. And also social media makes everybody want to be a star. So I feel like we're going to have more improv performers that people want to be on on stage versus like I just want to go watch an improv show it's like no I want to be an Instagram famous improviser or something you know like I think things are just, have just changed so much with social media and technology so this older generation that uh, were theater people I feel like mm -hmm. are now and can appreciate just sitting down and watching a play like our attention span now is just all over the place and it's not I feel like we have to re-educate our audiences to to appreciate a theater show uh, could I just fish out an example from uh, Laura and Gail? I think in the States, improvisation is it's almost like a bar attraction, where in Europe it's a theater attraction. And so yeah. Laura, and, Laura and Gail are both extremely talented for performers in ways that I'm not, which is with their physicality. And I heard about their show before I saw their show. And so... Um, and so, I, I, why don't, can, will you explain what you do, the, the, the Pixar uh, idea? Because when I saw this show, it is the most un-American piece of beautiful theater that I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. and, I could, and I felt like such an asshole that I would ever doubt these two 
to, to put on such a beautiful piece. So would you mind just uh, telling us what the two of your show is? Yeah, uh, our show is called Object of Affection. And basically the idea is to tell the impossible love story between two objects. So we Amazing. asked for a first object and then we asked for the impossible love interest. So we've had our best example at date of to illustrate that is um, an example we got in, in Latvia. It was the love story between a cactus and a balloon. Mm. And so we tell a full play, uh, 50 minutes, usually uh, a story uh, with playing a cactus and a balloon falling in love and their love story. Um, yeah, and that's, that has a lot of very, it's, it's very interesting to see how people react to that because they're often cut off their guards because they're like, oh, yeah, it's just a cactus and a balloon, you know, who gets, who tears up for, for a balloon and a cactus? <laughs> the answer is everyone yeah, They're just yes. like us. Balloons and cactuses are just like us. As a sometimes cactus, I'm already crying inside. <laughs> for all the balloons that I've heard <laughs> trying to hug yeah. them. So can I just say one of my one of the most memorable shows I've ever seen uh, was at the Sarasota Improv Festival when when you came and it was a completely silent show and they asked uh, people in the audience for for an object and I made my friend she opened her purse and she said I have a piece of bread in my purse I'm like give them that bread so they gave you bread and it was just a completely silent, completely physical scene of like feeding bread to pigeons and then the pigeons attacking her. It was completely, I was like mind blown. I was like, this is fucking insane and beautiful. Just feeding feeding pigeons with bread nobody said anything it was completely physical yeah. not, not an american word to make a funny pun right. it was it was amazing it was just so beautiful i think this actually shows a, a little bit how a, a lot of the performances that we do that we want to make are more inspired by other performance arts so that mm -hmm. includes theater but it's also dance it's also physical theater it's clowning it's it's all those different ones which means that a pun is is more in the direction of comedy right a, a pun yeah. you would maybe also see when it comes to scripted stuff anything scripted a pun would belong in a comedy show and if you would script any type of like movement thing it would probably be in a physical theater show and yeah. i think our audiences are uh th they are used to other t they're much less used to puns than they are to the weird stuff, the the physical stuff. I remember seeing theater shows where, you know, the entire stage was just like in a, uh, was this high in water, like everywhere on the stage was like, people were just walking, because that was like part of the, the art. And that means that we on stage, I mean, we love it and we love playing objects and we're, we both come from improv, no, from um, cultures where performance arts is, it's not weird to play an object that, it's not that weird. It's it's about as common as making a pun. Um, so that's or, where yeah, our in the states, people is. will play. In the states, people will play objects that make puns, and then we all. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, it's very well known that I 
am a pun hater. There are very I few, also am a pun hater. There's very few situations in which I will I'll, I'll be like, okay, that was super smart. I'll allow it. But otherwise <laughs> otherwise very well known. But also like and here's the thing, it's like that rule like uh, at second stage, it was like never play kids and never play a drunk person, right? And and mm-hmm. I have been opposed at times to people playing objects as well. But I think all of those things are about playing them with their humanity, and that's what's important. So you can play a drunk person as long as you're not using the inebriation as a reason to disconnect from your partner, deny your partner, sure. hide your f- fearful self from the scene. And same thing with a child, right? You can play a kind of, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, uh-oh. Velvet loves, Velvet loves puns. I still love and respect oh, you, Velvet. God. I but love we you are too, Velvet, but this is hard. <laughs> this is really hard. This is the first thing that's made me question our friendship. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of hard stuff. So, uh, <laughs> uh, But, you know, my interpretation of top of your intelligence is um, emotional intelligence, right? And that these yeah. objects uh, actually feel something and respond in a human way the way pixar can make you cry from toys going down a trash chute i love it i love um we met in edmonton laura i think and and uh uh i i am very much interested in that intersection right between the theater and and not being afraid it's it's so funny because you're retraining a theater loving world right to to understand improv a little bit more and then we have to get like a comedy loving world to understand Mm -hmm. the theater part of it and to open themselves to something that's maybe risky do you remember the show i don't know if you ever there was a show that that was on broadway it had i think it had traveled the world and i can't remember it's from i think it originated in brazil and i saw it in new york city they had a they had paper on the whole ceiling you come and you stand for the whole show and when the show starts lights are from behind the paper and then they drop paint and toy dinosaurs and all this stuff over you're listening to that sound of the dripping paint and you're seeing the colors and then it all gets ripped and then it's this huge drumming and aerial act with people flying through the air it was so brilliant and it seems like like people will go and pay a lot of money for that on Broadway, which is great. It was amazing and totally deserved it. But then they go home and they don't want to, in the U.S., they don't want to go see a local theater production. They don't have faith Mm -hmm. that it'll be a quality production. Uh, And so they don't want to take that risk. And that is what I've always loved about European improv. And I think unexpected productions in Seattle has always tended stylistically to the more. I've always been like, they do like the more European style. (laughs) (laughs) You say it in that voice, right? They do the European. I I, I got this scarf. I got to go to the Kubrick Film Festival and then I'll head over to unexpected productions. Uh, (laughs) But that's how we, you know, that kind of sums it up, right? The U.S. is anti-intellectual. I think that's we're just so verbal like everything is just verbal yeah. verbal verbal and and improvisers everywhere else and especially in Europe the training the theatrical training is so much more vast than what is demanded on us because we are this um, like the physical th- there's 
how many different approaches to physicality do you have? And if you're lucky in the United States, somebody has had a dancing background and that's it. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky. But, that's why but I appreciate what Gail was saying, which is like, we are so verbal in the United States with, which leaves a lot of people out of the equation, you know, and um, like English is my second language. It's the second language of a lot of performers that I know. And it, I feel like that, uh, that kind of verbal play and that always being what's validated is what's exclusive. It, it can be very exclusive for a lot of people. Uh, yeah. And in a and in a white dominated context, the degree to which like we mm-hmm. share our lives cross culturally, <clears throat> like you can kind of only find in big cities, and even in big cities, there's problems with that. So if we're doing verbal dr- driven comedy, <clears throat> then of course people are going to be punching in, in every direction that doesn't involve heart, that doesn't involve gut, that doesn't involve empathy, that doesn't involve the human experience because we'll do anything for a joke because that's part of the capitalistic American white culture. As I, I feel like the peak of UCB was like UCB was very much, you know, stand there in your street clothes and be witty and they're masters of that skill which is a skill that everyone should work toward like i I believe in trying to put every tool in your in your bag Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it was so just focused on that and i for writers yes and I've seen it swing back where suddenly people who were obsessed because we opened during the height of UCB mania. Um, so it was a big part of us trying. You know, and I'm more from Chicago where uh, somebody mentioned here they saw TJ and Dave and they're like, that's as good as any TV they've ever seen. Like, you know, I come from that more theatrical yeah. improv background. So it was hard to watch people be like, yeah, but when do we get to make the witty jokes? How are you going to teach us to make those witty jokes? Uh, but I feel like then people then Carla, when Carla Kukowski was up here a couple of years ago, people were like, oh, those relationship scenes are hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think at least you make such an interesting point about, uh, or at least that's what I'm associating. I'm not even sure you made that point. Um, but the, uh, the, the idea that if you, if there are more different um, uh, skills that are being welcomed in improv, then more also more different people can be a talent or can be right. extremely good. So yeah. uh, seeing uh, La Carpot, that the group you probably saw in Sarasota with that gal's yes. part of, uh, like yeah. they, uh, they are, they show how you don't have to be a, uh, native English speaker to be a, to be such a good show. And to see that I think is really important for anyone to go like, well, I'm not very fast or my brain doesn't go right. that fast yes. or yeah. I don't have the words at my disposal. And that can be because it's your second language, but it can be any other reason as well. And they're like, whoa but I can be that great and that cool. Uh, or when you see yeah. that someone is a very physical player to go like, wait, maybe I can be that or a good singer or really great face show expressions <laughs> or whatever. Like there's, there's so many things. And I think that welcoming of the broader range of skills yeah. will attract also more people. Um, because I, I mean, I've had people in my class that if there were a few very witty people 
in the first trial class, they would be like, I don't think this is for me because I'm not as funny as them. And I'm like, okay, well now mm -hmm. they suddenly set the bar for what you need to be. And I was like, that's not per se improv. There's so many types of improv, please stay. <laughs> so That's great. I love the inclusivity point of it even beyond language, right? And the I, I have found that sometimes older students are a little uh, process a little more before their verbal responses. Uh, and younger, faster, you know, people who were like, I want to do this are like, oh, this person is slow. I'm slow. I'm always super slow. <laughs> in my, they'd be like, oh, it's Stacy's super slow Portland style. And it took a lot to get faster. <laughs> Portland style. Portland style, you know, way back in the day. It's not Portland style anymore, but it's like, you know, Tom Johnson's Brody was a little slow, you know, wasn't the UCB stuff. Um, <laughs> but I love that idea of like, you know, neurodivergent people uh, who have language yeah. barriers, word recall issues, medications that cause word recall issues, which yeah. there are a lot. Uh, so getting more into your body being an, an alternative form of expression and people are just kinetic more than they are verbal and learning how to hold space for people to process to give them the time like learning how to hold that space and support them and hold them up while they come up with whatever they're going to say or do or feel next i mean kind of my yeah. my thing every time i teach workshop i end up doing this exercise where someone says something and i count to five out loud and the person has to act their reaction before they can say their reaction. Uh, and it's a huge struggle. One of my favorite things is how much people will be standing right here and then they'll act for five seconds and I force them to like leave the spot. <laughs> And then finish, and then they come back, and then they just deliver their line back in the position that we're going to start counting. Yeah, it's just like okay, hold on, let's actually feel what you just did <laughs> in your body. Um, but it requires a teammate who will give you that five seconds, mm -hmm. right? And the trust, and the and they'll be like, oh, but when I go back. I can't do it. There's a sense of if I don't talk right away, I'll never get to talk. And so, mm -hmm. which is sometimes true. Right. Like, to be honest, like, I've been in plenty of shows where I just didn't have space to exist. Also, because, like, all the things we've just said in the last two minutes is uh, uh, the, the assumption is that silence is a waiting time for speaking. Yes. Yeah. And I think silence is a thing in itself. Yes. And so it's not mm -hmm. only being patient for the person to say what they have to say, but it's also considering that maybe their silence is an information in itself to use and to play with. Uh, and that's something that is sometimes difficult yeah. in, the, in the cultural differences. That's beautiful. Have you seen or met uh, Yanomi from Japan, no. Shoshins? You would love her, and I. Uh, an introduction needs to be made. And she started touring before her English. You know, I mean, I think her English was good, but she didn't feel like her English was good enough to mm -hmm. do a show. And she's a, a clown and a physical performer and does these. She's traveled the world doing these shows, these solo shows. Um, and it's just amazing how much whimsy and the stories that she can tell as a solo performer and she's done some duo work without a single word in the in the show and it makes me so happy to see it i wonder if we're starting to find that 
Europe is starting to like, you know, get trained in the little bit more playfulness uh, and in the moment and spontaneity of improv while the U.S. is starting to get more into the theater arts and the acting uh, skills, or I hope we are, and uh, that we're sort of <laughs> merging all these skills into one big backpack or toolkit. I don't know. Do yeah, that would be I nice. So. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of go back to what Laura was talking about at the beginning, which is just this Dutch approach of just rehearsing every week with a coach. And it's just your hobby. It's the fun thing that you do. And you do that for the joy of sort of working on something. Um, and then the expectation is at the end of the year, some friends and family <laughs> will come like, how do we transplant that amount of focus and patience and appreciation for the the process into Americans? Yeah. I mean, because more and <laughs> can more you fix now, Americans for us. Sure, you if you want me if anyone this. can, it's the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know in your classes. Sorry, just to tack this on in a more specific way. Like in your classes, how much time are you? How are you embodying a sense of presence in in someone's body who maybe doesn't come into your class feeling that way just as an example obviously it takes a lot of time and work but what are some ways that you help people get more in tune with their bodies and also what a scene partner is communicating with their body yeah i think there's a lot to do in um so I've been teaching in the last semester a full semester on silent improv, <laughs> <So> <laughs> where, <laughs> that, where there was no words during the whole semester. Wow. Um, so uh, uh, the things I've worked on a lot is is to sharpen the eye on what is the actual story you can read already without having to say it, and how can you share that story, um, and and how can you like use what you receive without like there is always this like double uh, paradoxal expectation of you need to be communicating things in a way that trust a hundred percent your partners that they will get you and there is also this this expectation that you need to have that they will never get you so that you keep staying connected to what is happening to what is happening now i know that i've had that uh, feedback from people watching our show with uh, uh, the, the people from La Carte, especially Dan and Cedric, two of my uh, scene partners, uh, where people was like, you always understand each other. And, and the three of us were like, that's very untrue. We just <laughs> trust that whatever that person understands is the right way to understand it. Mm -hmm. and, and then it feels like we really understand each other. And somehow we do, but it's, it's that that's readiness a hundred percent of the time that what is received is more important than what we intended to send uh and with words it's very difficult to do that because words are more specific more precise while with the body there is plenty of reading that we can do out of it that's amazing that's awesome yes laura yeah, I, I think I want to tag on to that is that what I realize is that to make students or any improviser use their body more, it's often not so much a matter of like, hey, remember this arm? Like, because, you know, that's something <laughs> I do as well. Like, just like stretch your arms or like touch your body. Like, that's kind of stuff is really helpful. But what's really helpful 
is to uh, make people trust the product. Body is um, words. There's more control on words. There's a very, like Gail said, like there's a very specific meaning to it. Also, words are more dominant than silence. Words are more dominant than body. Words are more dominant than emotions. Like they're dominant. Gail's a great art, has a great article about that. You should read it. But there, because of that sort of like control thing that words have, and especially if your voice is loud, if English is your for, or if you're playing in your first language. All of that gives control. And if you're able to get your students into a place of like, you can just let go, you can like let down your guard. Uh, things I love doing is make people ugly dance. Yes, it moves their body. Yes, it warms them up, but it's specifically ugly dance because it's about letting go of your guard of like, like I will have them make eye contact while they ugly dance. Like it's, that is uncomfortable as shit, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's oh. and you're like, oh, it's just me. And, and now you've seen like the worst part of me. This is how I dance when I'm drunk. <laughs> okay, now that we've gone through that together. I think that when I'm drunk, I do beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you do. Yes, you do. That's only me. I don't think that. I don't know what everybody else is thinking. I don't think I don't think we've gone dancing yet, Elise, with you drunk. So now I need to oh, see that. Do you remember dancing? Oh my god! I know, right? <laughs> uh, but um, I love that. So Rob Reese, I think, was one of the the he w said something really early in my improv, like first year, probably first months of this particularly long form improv, where he said, um, you know, that the words are violence to the scene. You know, because like once they're said, they, as you're saying, calling them dominant. Uh, I love that framework of thinking about it because in if, if I do this motion, anyone can interpret what that is uh, anyway. But once someone names it, we all have to agree that, uh, you know, to that or react to that, uh, actively disagree with it if it's making everybody uncomfortable. So the thing that... Uh, I was thinking about in that is that it's tension because it's uncertain and you have to get more and more comfortable letting that uncertainty sitting in uncertainty. Um, go ahead, and it's also like the words come from the engineering part of our brain, which is the control part of our brain, which is the making sense part of our brain. And the, the more we use words, the farther away from the jazz and our ability to interpret each other we get. And that's, you know, that's a pitch from my world, but. Uh, uh, the reward the, for the, me in, sorry, go ahead, Joe. I'll finish. Yeah, just the, the not knowing and the not labeling, it creates theatrical tension. Yeah. And that's what the audience is there to experience. Yeah, and then sometimes by the time if if you do speak in the show, but you let that space go, by the time it's spoken, it's some it's the tenth thing you thought it might be, which ends up being way more interesting and surprising to you and to everyone than your first impulse. Does this make sense to you all who do this all the time? <laughs> all the time. <laughs> we all need to do that. We, we just let's the uncertainty sits. But do you find that people have to be able to sit in the uncertainty, and that makes them uncomfortable? And is there a way to teach them to be more that you do through this work of 
how how do you make someone understand that it's a trust issue, right? That it's going to work out if we vulnerability by by showing them also that it works, by showing them that it's enjoyable. Like I I um I've been producing a a, a show in the style of uh, Hayao Miyazaki, inspired by the work of Hayao Miyazaki, and I uh, remember last year or no now oh, wait two years ago almost now um uh having this show in amsterdam and uh chas from uh, unexpected uh production was there and he came to see me at the end of the show and he wasn't sure he liked it yet but he was like <laughs> you taught me you taught me again the definition of patience and and later on we talked about it and he happened to have slept on it and decided that he liked it um oh wow thank it's, you it, it's, a, it's an interesting I, I think it's it's also like when we are all uh, uh too fast to let anything slower happen we don't have any example of this working and so it's it builds up the fear of like if it's never happening it's probably that it doesn't work so i shouldn't let it happen and then it happens even less and then it and it's a, a vicious circle. So like my, my classes on silence really start by just playing a bunch of scene where I give them setups and, and I let them sit in the audience and watch that like by small groups, but always have someone that is watching these, these silent scenes for them to realize when I'm on stage, after two seconds and a half, I'm panicking and I want to talk. But when I'm in the audience, after five minutes of a silent scene where nothing happens, I want more. <laughs> and and I, have a test I would like to, to give a testimonial for that because I was going to talk about the workshop that I took with you where you did exactly that, where you gave me and a performer who I, I, I don't connect that well with. But you gave us a scenario, it was like a secret that we knew. And... Um, I and then like the audience didn't know what it was and it was it was a heavy it was a heavy secret right um but what she did when she came into the scene was something that I would have never imagined somebody would do and I had to sit there and be and I would have immediately started talking because it was a it was a, it was a heavy thing and the moment that she started acting like everything was normal told me everything about how she was processing that and literally by the end of the scene I was like Wah! Right, but it was so nice because I didn't have to work. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to let it happen, and it and it did. It happened on its own, and I didn't. I didn't. I literally did not have to do any work. <laughs> That's the beauty great. of it. But the but also yeah. right again, it's that trust and having a team that will support that. And and just to bring it back around to styles of theaters, you know, in Chicago at IO that's where i feel like i learned patient scenes and relationships was from my teachers from io who came and taught me different places but when i was actually at io there was this sense that sharna might walk in and cut you at any moment so nobody left any space for anything even though the the talk was that we wanted dynamic shows and we wanted truth and comedy and we wanted that but then my coach would say stacy do you feel like you have to start all the grounded scenes 
And I was like, if anyone else would start a grounded scene, <laughs> then maybe I'd start a game scene. But there's nobody Do you want doing to have a popular scene, coach. Yeah. Yeah, and I was also the only woman on there, so you know. You got aggressive there for a second. <laughs> That's why I love you. <laughs> I'm always like kind of dancing around something, and then you're always like, "Fuck that!" <laughs> Thank you, Elise. How did I look like this? You're <laughs> you just got so ready to fight that coach <laughs> from 15 years ago that I had. All right. Well, we're starting. We're, we've been talking for a long time, and I could talk to you for another two hours, but I know. It's late there. So before we let you go, uh, is there anything you want to share? Uh, people can find you where and anything you just want to talk about or mention or wish I had asked about? Oh, so many. Um, so I'm just going to add a thought based on what you just talked about and circling all the way back to the beginning when we talked about um diversity and social justice is to sit in discomfort is maybe something that is great for theater and it's great for being better human beings and sit in discomfort the more you do it it becomes less uncomfortable so that's just something i thought of when we were talking about this um uh, uh, Gail and I are teaching online super short like three week online courses um, so that is on flock-theater.com and in in the next two weeks from now I opened up my teachers course so people that uh, it's called teaching in profit confidence uh, if you are a teacher that would think I would love to feel more confident while I'm teaching then um, find one of our complex names on the internet. And <laughs> <laughs> they are complex names. And you both have names, I've noticed, too, that have a subtle vowel change. In, the, in your, Both your first names have Laura and Gail. Yeah. I'm like trying to master it with the subtlety it deserves. <laughs> now say oh, Rodriguez. You know, and Rodriguez. part <laughs> of traveling, it's actually how we both learned, like, you know what? We're not going to adapt our names to make it easier to pronounce. We're like, you know what this is good practice to start pronouncing the names how how my mother named me so yeah and then i have to sit in the discomfort of trying it until i get it right right but that's my job because that's your name yeah. right so yeah. yes for sure yeah. anything else you wanted to add gail um yeah no uh, everything laura said i just launched my newsletter where i share a bunch of stuff, cooking tips, articles, and other <laughs> projects that Amazing. I have. Joe told me you uh, love to cook, that you're a great cook. Yes. <laughs> so, so free to, to, yeah, to that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And someday, another time, we'll talk about video options online because, uh, you know, even post-pandemic, because uh, Joe mentioned that you and I might be thinking about some similar paths. Yeah. Um, but thank you both so much for your I just want to take every class you teach. Thank you, Joe and Elise, for being here. Thanks, everybody, for watching. And we'll do another one of these next week. Take care of each other. Sit in discomfort for, for kindness sake. <laughs> 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 <laughs>